So I think we all know in emergency medicine that there's a risk of being sued. But I did not think that I would be named so early in my career. I was not expecting this. So I was maybe a year or two out of residency. And I remember walking um, upstairs to our department and going to the mailboxes, which you know I'm pretty bad at. So it had been a month or two since I'd been there. And I'm pulling this wad of letters and papers and stuff out of my mailbox. And as I'm sifting through, there's this envelope in there that I, I didn't really recognize. And so I opened it up to look at what it was. And immediately my heart sank. And, you know, it basically said you've been named in this lawsuit. And I, I mean, I, I don't even think I finished reading the letter because I didn't know how to respond to it. And so, you know, my, my anxiety, my heart rate was just through the roof. And I folded the letter back up and I stuck it in my bag and I went home and I stuck it in a box in my closet because I couldn't read it or look at it or even think about it. This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. So you've been sued. Oh, Sarah, that's so hard to hear. I am so sorry, man. While it is bad for you, it is a great start to part three in our legal series here. The next two episodes will focus on malpractice lawsuits. So in 2021, Medscape surveyed 4,358 physicians across 29 specialties about medical malpractice. And just over half of the respondents reported to have been sued at least once. Ugh. And failure to diagnose or delayed diagnosis was the most common reason for the lawsuit in this survey. A full 70 percent of emergency medicine specialists said that they had ever been named in a suit. And 54 percent of all respondents were very surprised by the lawsuit. The good news is that while lawsuits no doubt leave an imprint, slightly under one third of physicians feel that the lawsuit negatively affected their overall career. And physicians pay on average $7,500 annually for malpractice coverage, which, of course, varies by specialty and by region. So all of this is why Julia and our guest host, Dr. John Rose, interviewed Tom Doyle. Tom is a partner at Shuring Zimmerman and Doyle in Sacramento, California. He has spent almost 40 years defending hospitals and doctors in malpractice cases, which gives him a great historical perspective and a lifetime of experience to share with us. My name's Tom Doyle. I'm a partner at Shearing Zimmerman and Doyle in Sacramento. I've been practicing since 1984, so almost 40 years. And throughout my entire career, pretty much all I've done is defending physicians and hospitals and malpractice cases. If you could just talk about a little bit about the 101 or the life cycle of a of a civil, you know, a, a malpractice tort case and kind of where it starts for you and where do the where does where does it go by the time the doctor's involved in it, that kind of thing? So uh, we're typically contacted after the doctor has been served with a summons and a complaint. And 
Uh, depending on what state you are in, the complaint could be very vague. The complaint could be very detailed. There could be an expert declaration attached to the complaint supporting the allegations of the complaint or there uh, does not necessarily need to be one. For example, in California, you don't need to have uh, such a declaration. I call my uh, client right away. I, I try to meet with them as soon as possible. And, and one thing I emphasize at the beginning is we're going to watch the same thing unfold. To me, the case is going to move fairly quickly to you, Dr. So-and-so. The case is going to move very, very slowly. That um, pre-COVID, my best estimate was always, you know, the this case is probably going to take two, three, maybe a bit more years before we have a resolution of the case in some form or fashion. Now with COVID, I add a year or two to that. So it doesn't move very quickly. Um, and then uh, once we respond to the complaint, then we're in the phase of the case called discovery, where we're gathering information, getting medical records, working up the various components of the case, and uh, and I always let my client know at the beginning of the case when they're going to have to do something, meeting with me, uh, responding to written discovery. If we receive written discovery, uh, a deposition, um, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, many physicians have, have not sat for a deposition and that can be a very uh, uh, stressful event. But and then after the deposition, there's usually some sort of alternative dispute resolution, uh, uh, meeting, a settlement conference or mediation. And, and if the case is still alive, uh, we go to trial. What percentage of cases do you think actually make it to trial? These statistics have been fairly consistent for a number of years. And I can't tell you if they're California specific, but I... I think they are more national, but uh, 82% of cases filed get dismissed along the way for no money being paid. The, the other side just gives up. Of those remaining 18% of the cases, uh, about 82% of those cases settle, and then the remaining percentage go to trial. And then the cases that go to trial, again, the statistic, I don't know why it keeps coming back to 82%, but, but if a malpractice case goes to trial, 82% of the time, the uh, uh, defendant will prevail. And that would be the physician. That would be the physician. So when that physician receives that notice, what's the first thing that they should do? Well, the first thing they should do is notify their medical malpractice insurance company and to do that as promptly as possible because there are time limits for responding to the complaint. I've had clients who have received uh, a summons and a complaint and just freeze and put it in a drawer and don't do anything about it until six months later and by then they've created a lot of problems. So you need to notify your malpractice carrier right away, or if you're in a larger institution with risk management, you would notify your risk manager. Sarah, it's like they basically read your mind. <laughs> or you read the textbook on what to do with malpractice. I don't know, man. 
Sarah, did you look back at the case and like, what did you think about it after you pulled that little paper out of the box? I mean, honestly, I didn't want to think about it. But at the same time, it was all I could think about. I was just spinning in my head about the details, what could have happened, what was going to happen, where it was all going. So I actually talked to Dr. John Rose. (laughs) He's kind of my go-to in things like this. And he recommended I talk to risk management and to our legal team to find out more. I did go back and look at the case as well. I pulled the medical record number and Oddly, I had a sinking feeling about what case it might actually be because I remembered a case that ultimately had a bad outcome. And I looked up the MRN and it was that case. And I just started replaying all of the events in my head over and over ad nauseum. (laughs) Sarah, you are not alone in the postmortem rehash. You know, Tom talks about the key components of a malpractice suit that apply to cases like yours. And I think back to the kind of beginning of learning about, you know, law for us as physicians, you know, we always learn about the classic four things you have to have to make a a civil or a tort case, a malpractice. If you can go through those four things, but as much as it's important to know about them, it would be like the inside for you, like where, where do you see cases really kind of hinge on? So first, there has to be a duty. In other words, the the physician has to owe a duty to uh, the patient who is suing them or in the event of a wrongful death, still have the duty to the patient, but now the, the lawsuit has been filed by the family. Typically, duty is not an issue in the case because there's a physician-patient relationship which automatically creates the duty. Now, there are from time to time curbside consults which invariably never make it into the medical record. One can argue that uh, if you're the person being consulted on the curbside, you're not going to have a duty to that patient uh, in an informal setting like that. Distinguished from you happen to be walking by an exam room and there's a problem going on and you step in to help, now you have probably taken on a duty to that patient, but depending on the circumstances, you may have an immunity that you can claim because you're a good Samaritan who just uh, did step in to help. But as I said, duty typically is not an issue. The two main aspects uh, from my perspective are, is there been a breach of the duty? Is the care that was provided by the physician, and we all use synonyms, was it below standard of care, was it negligent, was it inappropriate, or whatnot? My position is always, well, of course my client's care is is at all times within the standard (laughs) of care and appropriate. But plaintiff is the person who is suing, the defendant is the person being sued. But the plaintiff has to have an expert witness who says what the standard of care is and then says my client's care was below the standard of care. I will have an expert witness uh, who says obviously the opposite. And uh, ideally you want to have a specialist in emergency medicine when you're defending an emergency medicine physician. So the, the standard of care is always hotly contested. And then the issue of causation can also be hotly contested and can be sometimes the more interesting aspect of the case because causation means 
that the, the alleged care below the standard of care caused the injury, caused the death, whatever the injuries or damage is being claimed. And in some cases, you can have care that's below the standard of care, but it didn't cause any injury or damage. Uh, not germane to the emergency department, but failure to diagnose various cancers. If the time lag is only, you know, a, a few weeks or, or, or a month in the delay, that probably is not going to cause any injury or damage compared to a, a two or, or three month delay in diagnosis. And when you get into, uh, well, let me back up. When you're talking about the standard of care, it is a prospective analysis. The, the expert witness who is evaluating the standard of care and commenting on that has to put themselves in the person's shoes at the time using whatever information was available at the time. You can't do a retrospective analysis. When you get to causation to try to determine or figure out did the care in fact cause some injury or damage or did the injury damage or perhaps death flow from something unrelated, the patient already had an underlying uh, terminal illness, that's what caused their death, not the, the substandard care in, in the emergency department. But when you're looking at causation, you can do a retrospective analysis. You can take all the information that you have, have gathered to do that. So um, standard of care is always an issue. Causation is sometimes an issue. Sometimes, it, you know, if you gave a, a three-year-old uh, child in the emergency department who's complaining of abdominal pain and the child weighs, say, 15 kilograms and you give them Nine. Uh, what, what's the unit of morphine? I'm. I'm. Uh, oh, milligrams. <laughs> yeah, give them not. Yes, yeah, sorry. You give them nine milligrams of morphine, and they go into a respiratory arrest and die. There's probably not a causation <laughs> argument yeah. in, in that case, but sometimes there is. And then the last part of the case is uh, damages. And from my perspective, there's really two general categories of damages. There are what we call economic damages or general damages. That's the pain and suffering, the emotional distress. Hard to put a dollar figure on that. Um, that's really up to the jury to decide, which is sometimes why you can see these wildly uh, large numbers. Uh, economic damages, that's your medical expenses, your loss of income. In a wrongful death case, funeral and burial expenses, loss of financial support that would have been provided to the surviving family. And then when you have a married couple and, and, and it's the patient who is suing, they're still alive, the spouse can have what we call a loss of consortium claim. And that is a derivative claim. And what the spouse is saying, well, you, Dr. X, you malpracticed my husband, He's still alive, but he's severely disabled, and that has now adversely affected our marital life and all aspects of our marital life. And so, therefore, I'm also suing you uh, for those uh, uh, damages and injuries that you've caused me. It would, makes me know why I would put that summons in my drawer after having you <laughs> say all that. I think I would probably put it in my drawer. Sarah, how did this impact you as a human or even just as a physician? 
Yeah, I mean, it definitely made me question myself. I was an early career physician, very junior, already suffering from imposter syndrome. And now I have all of these questions running through my head in terms of, you know, did I manage this case correctly? What could I have done better? What could I have done differently? Did I document well enough? How many times in my life am I going to get sued? (laughs) If this has happened already, is this going to be a yearly thing? Or, you know, how many times am I going to have to go through this? Yeah, totally. How did you deal with all of that stress, Sarah? I probably didn't deal very well. (laughs) You know, you're not supposed to talk about it. I talked a little bit to my husband, um, which I think you are allowed to do, but he um, is not medical and so probably didn't have the same understanding as an EM physician would. And I couldn't really talk to my colleagues about it. I wanted to. I wanted to ask them questions. Had they been through it? And, you know, what would they do? And you can't. And that was really, really hard. I remember when you were going through this, Sarah, and I don't think I made it easier for you because (laughs) I was like, oh, tell me all the details of the case. And that just puts you in a harder spot. But you are not alone in the stress of that moment. While you feel like you are, you are not alone. And there is a lot of identity that's wrapped into that. And we get into that with Tom and with John Rose also. You know, I think, uh, John, one of the things that makes people want to put it into the drawer is, you know, shame associated with uh, receiving these summons, receiving these notices. Um, And then we often feel like we can't talk to each other about it. What is the best practice, Tom, when you do receive this summons and as you're looking over these cases, can we talk to our colleagues about this? Like, who can you talk to? Who can you not talk to? The physician has to be judicious in their conversations with people about the case uh, because there are certain privileges that apply and you don't want to violate those privileges. There is a privilege for peer review so the physician can participate in the peer review process if required and have a frank and and, uh, perhaps emotional discussion about what happened. Different states protect peer review to different degrees, but I would suspect every state has some degree of peer review protection. Most importantly, you have an attorney-client privilege. So the physician, all of their conversations with their attorney, other attorneys in the office, staff in the office, uh, representatives from the malpractice insurance company, All of those conversations are privileged, meaning at a deposition or at trial, the physician cannot be compelled to answer questions about what has gone between them and their attorney to include information they've learned about the case from their attorney. But what my clients often find difficult is, well, what if I need to talk to somebody else? I mean, you're my attorney. I I, can't talk to you. Well, you can talk to me whenever you want, but but you know, you mean I can't talk to anybody about this case? And basically, I said no. You can't. Um, the, the there is, and I believe every state uh, probably has a spousal privilege. So that's your one release valve, if you will. You can talk to your spouse. You have to be legally married. Uh, But you can talk to your spouse and those conversations are privileged. But no, you cannot talk to your colleagues. You can't talk 
to the nurse who, who, who triaged the patient or the nurse who did the initial assessment. You can't talk to the, your colleague who took the handoff when you went home because those conversations are not privileged. And I have seen situations where uh, it's even happened to me, despite my advice, I go over all of this in the initial meeting, where my client has talked to someone else involved in the care and they've had this frank discussion and the other person says something about my client that is unkind or, or, or I would be chagrined if it saw the light of day. Well, now at deposition, well, have you talked to any of your colleagues about this case? Well, yes, I did. Oh, who? What did you say? What did they say? And now we have out on the table uh, something that we wish the other side uh, was not uh, aware of. And when you say the peer review process, you're talking about like a formal peer review improvement moment, not just I'm talking in the hallway uh, for peer review, right? Like the formal process of peer review. Correct. It has to be a formal process conducted by the hospital. I mean, with emergency medicine, invariably, you're in a hospital setting, so it will be a hospital peer review. Large groups have a peer review uh, process that they do that that can be uh, protected as well, but but no, uh, it would be quite a stretch to argue two doctors talking in the hallway about the case in anticipation of the peer review meeting tomorrow. No, that's probably not going to be privileged. So I was actually asked to appear before our hospital review committee, and that was also stressful. They told me where to come, and then I had to sit outside the room for at least half an hour before they were ready for me. Um, and I walked in, and it was this long conference table with tons and tons of people, it felt like. I don't know how many it really was. And the process was not actually that bad. They were asking questions. They wanted to tease out a little bit more about what happened in the case, the timeline of events, and uh, and what my thought process was. And I ultimately just kind of told them what happened and and said the case from my perspective. And then that was it. And they let me go. And I didn't really get any follow up on that as to what happened or what they thought. But um, I guess they took that into their consideration. I think that's another really stressful component of the malpractice lawsuit process is that you have so many people playing Monday morning quarterback or like looking back at your stuff and rehashing it out in a way that we're just not used to. And um, that can be really hard for us. Yeah. And feeling judged by your colleagues, these people who you work with and you trust and you want to be a good doctor and you want them to believe in you and having to feel like you have to defend yourself to this group as well is really stressful. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know what the standard of care really is and where that deviation is. And the good news is Tom and John and I kind of dove into that in the rest of the interview. When events happen, we, we're, we're very hard on ourselves. I'm probably harder on myself than my colleagues are to me. And I know you and I have had conversations over the year, Tom, where you, you know, I'll say, God, it was A minus, it was B plus care. I feel so bad. And you're going, John, it's really F level care we're looking for. <laughs> we're looking to get, I remember you saying that one time as standard of care that, you know, sometimes we get very critical of ourselves that way. You know, it, when I started practicing, unless you were an orthopedic surgeon, an OB, 
or a neurosurgeon, for those specialties, it was not if, but, you know, how many times are you going to be sued over a, a 30 or 40 year career? Unfortunately, over the years, that has become virtually every specialty. Uh, it, it may be pathologists are relatively safe, uh, but other than that, it, you know, I, I, I tell my clients, I mean, this, this is not a reflection upon you. This is not a reflection upon your care. Nobody gets through their entire career anymore without a lawsuit or a threat of a lawsuit. So you just need to take a deep breath, try and relax. There's things we can do to try and alleviate that stress, but the stress is always going to be there. I think I've learned long ago that the cases I'm worried about being sued for, I probably won't be ever sued. The case that would ever get named in is a case I don't even remember who it was. It seemed like a nothing case. And for some reason, it, you know, there's, a, there's contact about that when you're, and you're hearing about it. And so I think we've all learned after a long career, you just, these can happen. Though I think many people, especially young um, people out, you know, are new in practice, they're just getting started, they're getting underway. There is almost a grief response, a kubaras, you know, they go through this, you know, they're fearful. They want to quit their job. I'm a horrible doctor. I'll never do this again. How, how could this person I spent so much time with now do this? And all of these thoughts that go in your head. And actually, I, I, I have a case pending for uh, a couple of physicians in an emergency department up in the foothills. And and one of them was recently deposed, and, and he's young, and, and he said, you know, this is just stressing me out. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm, I'm going to do something else. And I had a long conversation with him about the, you know, from my perspective, the realities of the practice of medicine. You know, you can't beat yourself up about this. You know, there's, there, there are probably cases where, where afterwards you thought, ooh, I really screwed the pooch on that one, uh, where you don't get sued. And, but, yet, but, but doctor, you've told me you did everything right in this case. Uh, you didn't do anything wrong. Why are you being sued? You know, it's just luck of the draw, I guess. And you just need to, you need to talk to your spouse. You know, maybe you want to talk to a, a mental health professional you know, talk to your group, maybe they have resources available to you, but you can't let the fact that you've been sued ruin your personal life and ruin your professional life because it's just a fact of life. I think it's a fact of life for those that are imbued in it all the time. For those of us that have poured our youth, our heart, and our soul, and our identity into this career, it is really challenging to remember that. But it is so good to just say, like, hey, it's probably not a matter of if you're going to get sued, but when are you going to get sued? And we do the best that we can as we move along for that. Right. Because you know, the practice of medicine, things go wrong. The human body is amazingly complicated and complex. And trying to convey to a jury how amazingly complex and complicated it is can be difficult but there's so many things that can go wrong, so many risks and complications that can occur over which you have no control. And you know what? It's just bad luck. I'm, I'm sorry it's you, but, you know, next time it'll be somebody else. Pulse check. 
When you receive a notification of a malpractice suit, stop and take a breath. And don't throw it in a drawer hoping that it disappears. Call your risk management team or malpractice insurance team and they can help you with the next steps. 82% is the number to remember. 82% of filed cases get dismissed along the way. 82% of those who don't get dismissed will settle. And 82% of those who go to trial, the defendant or physician will win. The four Ds of any medical negligence are duty, deviation from the standard of care, direct cause, and damages. All four must be present. And if you are sued, it's okay to discuss how hard it is, but leave the details of the case to protected conversations. This is not always personal. Many or even most of us over a lifetime of work will be sued. We just need to do the best we can each shift and be prepared for that moment. Well, this was a little bit depressing. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. But the good news is, Sarah, that Medscape malpractice survey that we talked about at the beginning noted that the majority of physicians did not feel the malpractice suit impacted their long-term career. Yeah, I think the focus on day-to-day doing the best we can for the patient in front of us is a good place to focus. Also, we can't talk to our colleagues about the particulars of a case, but you can talk about the emotions of it and what it feels like and let them know how they can support you. And when you know someone who is being sued, don't ask them about the details of the case. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That can put both of you in an awkward place. So just be supportive in other ways. Talking about the process, the emotions, and the strategies to deal with stress are all okay. All good points, Sarah. Lessons learned for sure. And that will help me in the future. That and a little bit more information. Which is good because we have part two on dun, 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 malpractice lawsuits coming up. <laughs> Tell us what is your tip for a physician when they are notified of a suit. Follow us at Impulse Podcast and show us some love by liking and sharing our podcast. Thank you to our department for great risk management support. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for being my own personal privilege conversation. See you next time. 